Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is part two. Just to make clear, you may have missed part one or maybe you're listening in the wrong order or you've clicked the wrong button, but this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, listen to part one first. I mean, it's not an incredibly uh, structured chat uh, because none of us really did that, but it will probably help to know where we come from to get to this bit. So yes, if you haven't listened to part one, listen to part one now. If you have, this is part two. Enjoy. Beautiful stuff. Is that what you liked? Is that the sense of him being able to somehow be a respected uh, stage actor and a very high status man, but also being a pure comedy at the same time? I'm amazed by that because that's what I'm driving, and it's very difficult to pull off because the and still the if you imagine the broadcasters, the producers, the they look. Are you? Are we? They want to put someone in who's going to draw a crowd, and and they don't quite believe that anyone can draw both crowds. And it is a tricky thing to pull off. You're going to be in a drama and pull a big drama crowd. You're going to be in a comedy and pull a big comedy crowd. They're going to be the same crowd or different crowd. No one knows how that works. And I'm I've I'm coming to contact with this all the time in doing dramas and films, and then doing uh, very surreal comedy. And, uh, and you know, Steve Carell is another one who's done that, and he's moved away from it. Uh, Hugh Laurie has moved away yeah. from the comedy. Mm. Steve Carell, I think, has moved away from. Comedy comedy um i'm doing still doing them both which is weird so in a way um, you're admiring his strategy you were talking about strategies going somebody who's done something you don't even understand no i'm i'm uh i would if that was his strategy i don't think it was his strategy he was offered that he was he was door stopped and said look here's a deal <laughs> and he said okay i'll do this and and he did it he just it, what he did right was that uh that thing i said about the bottom line of dramas to be truthful he is always truthful to his character he never breaks that character and that is the key thing of drama and i said this to matt leblanc when i did a film with him do you guys in friends do you ever break character to get a laugh and he said yes but it's not a big crime it's just that mm. I've well, most comedians do it if you think you could do this you could do something that's a bit odd that doesn't really quite fit in with the character but it will get a laugh then we tend we're, we're so driven for the laughs 
we're so hunter seeker for the last that we will we will do that. Here's a thing that came up in I was doing Day in the Death of Joe Egg, right? And terrific play. Isn't it? it was a terrific play, yeah. and it has this bit where you've got three scenes which are improvised. Right. Now, usually an actor will then go and do improvise. I come from improvising comedy, and the acting was my tough gig on that. But the comedy I could do standing on my head. I just, I just knew this, and I could. But in between it, there's, it's all about our daughter is, is is mentally disabled and how serious that is. But we take her to. Uh, a GP, we take it to a specialist, and then we go to see a vicar. So that's the, those are the three scenes. And the director, what I got right in New York, which I didn't get right in London, was the director said, don't forget in between, if you're going into these crazy scenes, in between the scenes, bring it back, because keep one hand on the wheelchair, because this is real. Now, if you're mucking about, it's it's not the actors mucking about here. It's the characters mucking about here. So this was an interesting, and that's what John Lithgow always, he was always that guy from outer space with all <laughs> yeah. the stakes of that. He was never John Lithgow. Dr. Solomon, are you all right? No, I can't talk about it. It's too personal. Let's just say I had sex with Dr. Albright. <laughs> And that's amazing too, because he does. There are there are stunt scenes he's allowed in this where he's there's a lovely thing where he's in a Japanese restaurant with Jane Curtin, who's playing the woman he loves, yeah. and he's being the, the the sushi chef and he's chopping stuff up and he, it's really over the top and really big and it's almost like a dance. He's moving some of this big man's moving yeah. around the frame and it's just pure clowning. But there's never any moment in that when he's not the character of Dick Solomon. Yeah, it's definitely it's clearly something that they've gone. You can just cut loose here, and he's gone. I'll cut loose this far. But not. No, no, I don't think it's the far thing. It's in a line. It's a line thing as opposed to a distance. He, he, he could go as big as he wanted. He could scream. He could shout because he is essentially a baby. It's just essentially, <laughs> a, you know, this child. So he can be as big as a baby wants to be. Whatever they want, but as long as it tie, it, it, it's it's it stay on those same tram lines. Don't jump tram lines and go across. Stay, and that's truthful. That would be his dramatic acting. I don't think he would want to. He, I don't think he'd think about that. Whereas, com- if you come from a comedy basis, we would jump tram lines and and reach for a gag that's not in our, yeah. which we're not allowed to do, mm. which which you shouldn't be allowed to do under story under character. Purposes because, like, if you're doing character improv, it's all thumbnail characters. If you're doing stand up, you're just going for whatever jokes you can get. Um, I now try to stay more, more true to that. And if, if there's a joke there that doesn't fit uh, how I'm playing it, I shouldn't say it. So, has your acting experience now yes, affected how you do the scenes, the act outs within your stand up? Yes, and also my diction is better because I had this whole mumbling thing which I developed as a teenager where. My brother's funny. My dad was funny. Um, uh, and I, I couldn't get a word in edgeways. I couldn't at the dinner table. You know, it, I just I found it difficult to tell a story. If I was telling a story that if I, would, I would just be getting to, OK, now they're all listening. I'm, I'm almost getting close to the punchline. And, you know, not even a funny, you know, just a story that might be amusing. And then someone said, could you pass the salt? And, and yeah, we haven't got any salt. Why don't you go out and get and study this whole story? Was, <laughs> and I, I now do things if I'm at a table. I say, I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story. Come back to the story. And I will force the story through. Or if some very nice uh, waiting person comes up and says, now, are you all happy? I'm telling a story. Just get into the punchline. Hang on a second. Because, uh, you know, but anyway. So I, I, so I, did, I developed this mumbling thing. And that was a that was a, a lack of confidence thing, and then I, I took it into the stand up. So my early stand up is full of like that. And in in the drama, I needed to articulate. I needed to get the words out clearly. And sometimes you, you know, you're doing it. Long John Silver, you're playing it. 
you know, London or America, you know, I mean, playing the, in the riches, and I had to stay in this accent the entire time. So I, I did that even off when I wasn't filming. I was staying in uh, America, so I could just lock this lock this thing down. Um, so you want it real, and you want your diction right, and diction right for the character, and right for whatever accent you're doing. Um, so that is a number of things from one side has helped in the other side. I don't know if anything from comedy has helped in the drama. Any dramas I do, I, I quite often have one joke in the entire thing. <laughs> Vague joke. There's one in Victorian Abdul where I'm shooting at Nebworth and Judy Dench is, is up the stairs as Queen Victoria and I'm Edward VII down the bottom of the stairs and she says, I'm taking the Munchi, the, the, her Muslim friend slash lover, to, I'm taking to Venice. And I say, you, the line is, you can't take a Muslim to Venice. And that's just nonsense. Like, you know, why? Why? <laughs> and I thought it was like a funny. I mean, no one laughs at it, and I just think it's funny in my head. But it's. I had that one joke. I had one joke in Treasure Island, but they're not even jokes. But I like that because I know the, in drama what works is 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 not what works in comedy. Actually, I, this is an interesting thing to say. When I went from comedy into drama, I knew that. If people are struggling in drama, what they'll do is they'll lean into doing a funny version of the scene, of the line, or whatever. So I had to turn all my comedy muscles off, put them all down to zero. If big, imagine a big mixing desk. It was all down yeah. to zero, pull all the faders down. And then I had nothing. So no comedy instincts were allowed to be used. So I realized I had no instincts. So my early work, if you watch any of my early work, um, it's, it's rubbish. It's, well, it's really <laughs> dodgy, uh, if, if not rubbish. But I had to do that. And that's why I want to talk about it now because because I had to I had to train up my own instincts in full view of people saying that guy's quite well known and he's doing this small role and ooh he's not that I don't know if I believe him but, you know. <laughs> and so I had to go through that rubbishy yeah. phase. It's a very brave thing to do in the public spotlight. Well, to not it's, choose it's, to go for the thing you can do. Brave, that's brave. So it, it, it had to happen. So so yes, you. But, but what normally happens is you get abuse, 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 and then you say, well, let's give it up. And and it's in the the Believe documentary. Uh, we did. I said this to Sarah Townsend, who was directing. I said this. This, this journalist said, "Why does Eddie want to be a so-so actor when he's a really good comedian?" And I said, "Well, because I used to be a so-so comedian. Mm. <laughs> it was this thing. I go. I personally go through so-so, and I, I start off awful in, in in loads of things that I do. Most people do, I think. That's the one of the great truths about." anything good is that it went through a period of being bad it's one of the things people, people don't like to hear this is the the first draft of everything is usually pretty poor well yeah and people don't hear it and they don't believe it either because you know there are some kids who are 15 and hey i did this one song and i took off and and they might be pretty good looking and well, you didn't work on your looks did you because that all worked. <laughs> so they'll just say i think a lot of people who are coming to the creative area they think well some you know if you're good you're just good but most people who get can get really good start off not good or okay. At, at Not so best. bad that you completely give up. Yeah. Well, that's it. The determination is more important than talent. That's the thing that I've worked out. That's kind of scary, but it seems to be true. Determination more important than talent because determination can pull talent out of you. And I think I was trying way too hard in my early auditions, you know, school auditions that you have. And, and also, if you're not very tall, if you remember at school, the tall boys got the lead king roles and the hero <laughs> roles. And this the is all Lithgow and John Cleese. This is, this is being big. Yeah. Yes, big yes, class. maybe so. But even though one was doing drama and one was doing comedy, but the small boys would not get it. Small girls, I don't think that would count against them if you were. But I was also probably just reading my lines really loudly, loudly. See how loud I can read? It's but, all about volume, isn't it? Well, well, you don't know what, no one tells you anything when you're a kid. How, what is good? And the thing is, you have to try and try and try and try again. Robert, Bruce yourself. 
didn't realise that um, the show had been built around John Lithgow, but it makes perfect yeah. sense because it is it is is basically it's a, a it's a concerto for John Lithgow and yeah. other people, isn't yeah. it? That's what it is with him in the middle giving yeah. all the juicy solos. It's four four time with a half beat hesitation. We have to dance. No, we don't. Yo quiero bailar contigo. Porque sus ojos son el sol en mi corazón. Allow me to translate using the universal language of dance. And they played to his strengths, and his strengths. He played to their writing. The it just it just mounted. There's a really noticeable thing that I don't think they knew because the other guys around are good as well. It's a good ensemble cast. Yeah, it's a lovely, very good. Good sitcom family. Find out what women on this planet do. Why can't Harry do it? Because you're the woman. That brings up a very good question. Why am I the woman? <laughs> Because you lost. <laughs> they feel like a sitcom family. You feel like you've seen French this. French Stewart is amazing, isn't I mean, he? P- peering through his eyelids the whole way yeah. through. But in a weird <laughs> way that make, makes him look like Clint Eastwood. Like he's just mm, trying to be sort of alpha male, but being complete Father Dougal idiot. I can't see through my eyelids. <laughs> Open them. Oh, they're manual. <laughs> Uh, and I like the blousy woman from downstairs who's yeah. <laughs> sexy, sexy going on 60s. It's so nice to have a town who smokes. So many people are giving it up. It just breaks my heart. <laughs> I've been all the way through them once and I'm going mm. back to it second time. But it's just, it's it's beautiful stuff. If you watch them in order, one of the things I notice is it starts out and it's got that classic 90s, slightly laddie male gaze thing, especially about, about Kristen Johnston. Yeah. And basically at the beginning, she's just a pair of breasts and a pair of legs. And they go, Even though it's a guy playing. Uh, it's a kind yeah, of, but... yeah, it's a guy inside. But it's, oh, it's very, very, everyone's talking about tits constantly. It's very, very 90s. Lieutenant. What? Permission to speak freely. Permission granted. Sir, would you jump up and down for us? <laughs> Oh, yeah, and uh, put your hands back behind your head like this. I will not. Please, for science, truly. And then by about episode six, they've completely dropped all that. And it gets a reputation for being quite broad and sort of sexy. She is completely allowed to be herself and has completely taken over the part and they've just written it up to meet her. I've got the feeling they maybe weren't expecting her to be as good as she was. Because by that point, the two of them sparring off each other just starts catching fire. You don't have the responsibility I do. If we let him out of that box and the big giant head gets wind of it, who do you think is going to take the fall, huh? The information officer? The transmitter? <laughs> I don't think so. It's going to be me, the woman. Typical. Sally. Think of all we've been through together. When Brad dumped you, who ordered you to drink yourself silly (laughs) until you completely drowned your feelings for him? You did. And when I ran over your foot with the car, (laughs) who drove you to the hospital the very next day? You did. And when you were hungry that day in the park, who stole that little girl's ice cream cone? Tommy did that. Well, it was my idea. And also her love interest, the gentleman who's also in uh, Seinfeld. Um, I, Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he plays uh, Newman, isn't he? Yes, he plays Newman, and he's great in this, and it's a real... And he's going, wow, this my girlfriend is just off the charts, and I didn't <laughs> expect to have this girlfriend. So it, that's a beautiful thing. They play that one backwards and forwards, and, and he just he really anchors that and changes the dynamic of what everything's... Well, they can do all these silly jokes about, because sort of, they're not really who they look like, so the, the idea that the kid is actually the oldest one of the yeah, aliens. Yeah. And, and that lovely line was, why do I get to be the woman? Because you lost. Yeah. And it's like, they've been tossing coins on the spaceship on the way over, yeah. and they, this is a sexist world they're landing in, so she loses, so she gets to be the woman. 
they're, they're playing all these neat, slightly Simpsons-y cartoon jokes on top of an American 90s in front of an audience sitcom. Yeah. And it gets to be both those things. So it gets to be big and broad, but have this wonderful dramatic actor in the lead. And probably proving that thing that people always say, that sort of comedy is hard. So you need an expert to do it. Someone really, really good. But you wouldn't have said that he would be the expert, though. Yes. It, it, what you've so, got there as well, which is quite neat, which is a pomposity in the character. And also, weirdly, a pomposity in the actor himself to go that he's playing high state. He is high status in the real world as well. So basically, they've, they've had to trick him into doing this in a funny <laughs> sort of way, which is almost like a sitcom in itself. That How did this happen? How did John Lithgow end up in a sitcom full of sort of slightly big, daft, clowny jokes? It's great. Yeah. He's obviously having a bloody good time as well, isn't yeah. he? He did. I, I was maybe that's I was, the secret. They promised him a bloody good time. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was watching an interview with him um, in which he he described the show as being extravagantly fun, um, and he also <laughs> mentioned in the same interview he said, "When I'm doing film acting, I keep getting told to turn it down." And I think the subtext of that was that no one said that to him on this show at all, so he could just turn it up as much as he liked, whenever he liked. I. Once been, you've got that freedom, you actually control it, don't you? Yeah. So you go, well, I'll turn it up, oh, but I'll leave it for special But what you were saying about control, that, that's something I, that has never occurred to me, is that you can turn it up as long as you don't go left or right. You can yeah, go as high line. as possible. Mm. And that's a real yeah. actor's skill. Is him saying, I can turn this up to absolute full and I will never well, go nev- left or right. He's, yeah, he's never going to, because that's his, his actor's training. And, and, and a comedian probably would get tempted to walk over the lines. But he never would because he he was he would be so locked on that. I just don't think he would consider that. Whereas we, if you come from comedy, you would consider it. Sacrifice um, anything. Yes, yeah, so sacrifice anything. Story, logic, thing. Um, who's it wrote? Uh, Only fools and horses. John Sullivan. John Sullivan. Yeah, John Sullivan. He talked about that in story. Don't go for a laugh. It's breaking. Care. I mean, that's the first time I'd heard anyone talking about it. I thought, oh yeah. right, okay, so yes, and I started analyzing because I use all this this. Because when I came out as transgender, did I say this already, mm. that I self-analyzed? Did I yeah, 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 yeah. It's like lying on a bed thinking about, oh, yes, I did say that. So that's when I got analysis because I did self-analysis. And then I was doing street performing and and I couldn't get the show working. Um, and street, street actually taught me everything. That's ninja training. Street is the hardest thing in the world of any medium that I think exists. Were you an escapologist? Did I read I that was. somewhere? But we started off, me and my partner Rob Ballard, we started off as a double act. And then I became an escapologist, went solo in 87, became an escapologist. And then I started uh, from ropes and chains. And then I got on a five foot unicycle um, <laughs> and escaped from manacles. But but it was so hard. I rewrote the show. He went on a holiday for, for a break. And I said, look, I'll rewrite the show. When you come back, it'll be, I made it worse. I made it worse. And we just couldn't get it going because <laughs> the, the attention spans change. Attention spans from, for adults become children. Children become animals. That is the weird thing. They will. You cannot talk. You can't do a scene saying, um, hello, you know, if you imagine two people walking on the street at Covent Garden or any open space where there's people walking around, and you're saying, "Hi, I'm a dentist. Uh, you, you want to see? Yes, I want to see a dentist. I've got a problem with it." They won't watch that. You have to do physical situation comedy. This is how I analysed it. So the situation comedy. It's physical. It's got to be. I'm going to get onto a unicycle. I'm going to get onto a ladder. I'm going to do the thing. We're going to balance this. This kid. I'm going to jump over the kid and juggles. You've got to be doing something active. I need someone from the audience. It's really need an audience member that really does help because then all the audience will root for that audience member. Mm. Oh, he's really going for it, this guy. Oh, well done, mate. And that it was so difficult because people would walk off in the middle of the show. Of course they would because they can get a coffee, a film, a yeah. thing, let's go shopping. They're not there for any reason. So I 
I thought this would be easy. I thought two weeks, because I'd done three Edinburgh shows by that time when I got down to Covent Garden at 85. And, uh, and I thought, I can do comedy, I can do sketch stuff, I can play characters, voices like this, oh, characters with voices like this, I can do that. Um, and this looks really easy, because I've done a bit of it at the Edinburgh Festival, where there's tons of people, so of course it was easy. And I thought the rules would apply, but no, people just wander away. And, <laughs> and you're there talking with people just walking around you like an idiot. And, and so I lost all my confidence. I went down to complete zero. You know, some acting schools, they say, we're going to break you down and build yeah, you up. Yeah, Marines, yeah. we're going to break you down and yeah. yeah. I accidentally broke myself down into pieces. And <laughs> accidentally, I couldn't think of anything else to do. Strategy-wise, I couldn't work out what else I could do. I didn't, stand-up was beginning to ha was happening, and I wasn't doing it. Um, was it beginning to happen? It was beginning to happen. And I just wasn't, but I'd never thought of myself being a stand-up. So this street thing, I just said, let's just keep doing it because I can't think of anything else to do. And gradually, I remember, I remember a bit, I started to get a sense of my own voice. This is the thing that I thought the Americans were better at, at performing in their own voice. And in Britain, we were better. And these are generalized rules uh, that we were better characters. Yeah. Uh, we, we had more character-driven stuff come from us. And... Uh, Eddie Murphy was one of the few who could do himself, and then he could do these weird characters as well. But I didn't know his Saturday Night Live um, stuff at that point. But I thought, I analyzed, I've got to get to play myself. I have to be able to work in my own voice. Not just, I am the king of China. Or, yeah. I, I am not the king of China. I, <laughs> Those I, the two characters, we, they come as standard. These are the only two I did. <laughs> or, or, you know, just anything. I, just, I was postman the thing with big voices, small voices. But then just to play myself, I thought, what's funny in that? And you can see this with a number of, uh, of comedy people who play a lot of characters. They're not very happy in their own skin. That's the Peter Sellers thing, isn't mm. it? There's no one there, yes. he said. Yeah, and I'm I'm very happy because I developed this thing. Because I went I went I fought to get it. And me and Rob used to start at the beginning of a show at Covent Garden. You you don't start the show. You lay out all your props, so it looks like something's going to happen. And then you just start talking. And he would be front stage left, and I'd be front stage right. There's no stage; it's just cobbles. Mm. And I and so we started doing the, at the beginning this sort of ten minutes of trying to build up a little edge, <clears throat> and we were doing it on our own. And I realized after a while, I was getting this thing. I just kept talking and talking. I found if I just kept talking and saying, hi, we're going to do a show. It's going to be here. We're going to children will, will, children will have a bad time in the show. So no children, please. If you have them, throw them into the bin. Not good, but we will do a show. Well, it would be an amazing show. It, it could be but, uh, people. I remember Che Guevara. He said to me, you know, I, I would just say anything. And I just, if I kept it going, kept it going, kept it going, I could hit funny. And if I didn't, if I stopped, then you go into panic. So I just kept talking and talking and talking. And I found that after a while, I remember thinking the spring of 87, 86, I think probably the spring of 86. And I say, I'm beginning to get something here. I could feel yeah. this voice. And I thought this voice is, is key. And I wasn't thinking of stand-up. I had no belief of ever. Billy Connolly did great stand-up. That was for him. I, I cannot do stand-up. I was quite sure of that. And then I got the street and I went solo, 87, and then 88, I started I, from 87 to 88. I was doing the solo stuff, just ropes and chains. And I thought, I've got to do stand-up. And people saying, you should do stand-up. And I thought, yeah, that is, because that's the, that was, became the mother load. Then weird, because sketches were nowhere. And then sketches came back on telly, Fast Show, I think. Were they and Little Britain. Mm -hmm. like yes, yeah. And it was just nowhere. And, and, uh, and I thought, well, it's stand-up as well. If you do stand-up, you're the only person. You don't have to make deals. You don't have to sit down and work out with yourself what you want to do you just decide what you want to do so because i was in a four-person comedy group back at sheffield uni mm -hmm. and we were um yeah we were sheffield university fringe stuff theater company and then you've got four people just like python they have to have 
five people now deciding what are we going to do? Are we going to do a show? Are we going to not do a show? Yeah. Gonna, uh, or bands or Rolling Stones, when are we going to tour? What dates are we going to tour? Yeah. When you're one person, you don't, you just say, I'm doing this now, then I'll stop that. We're going to put that there. We're going to do this. I'm going into politics right but now. Again, that, that suits you know. your strategy thing. The idea of, I've thought well, this through. It makes it easy. Yeah. Then you don't have to be in negotiation about your strategy. You go, I think I know what I yes. want to do. Well, I, I, I had all this planning. And so all the strategy <laughs> is always, because I had to say, right, hold that there. We're going to go to New York now. New York? Yeah, I need to get someone to put me on in New York. That would be the way forward and that was if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was interesting to hear you talk about why you picked John Lithgow as well. As someone who is not doing the same thing as you, but is doing something absolutely brilliantly, and that by looking at them and by admiring them and enjoying them, you can not necessarily copy them, but to appreciate what they're doing. The way you talked about it, I've not, I've not heard someone say that about an actor, is that literally to draw that geography of performance. And it's clearly something you obviously think about a lot, but by looking at someone who is excellent, yeah. do you draw inspiration from them or yeah. ideas? Or? Yeah, well, b- particularly um, dramatic acting. I love dramatic acting. My, my work is, I mean, you know, I was in... As I say, I'm bringing it back to Victorian Abdul, but me and Judy Dench just being head to head, and I work. If you watch, if anyone watches that film, which I think is, I love the film, and uh, just great to work with Judy. And I've done another film with her since then, but I worked out the one angle that Eddie Seven had was he hated his mum and he wanted her to go because uh, he she'd been on the throne a long time and he wanted to be king and she was she was you know, pegging out and that was going and then she meets this India guy and then she's got a new lease of life <laughs> and he's pissed off <laughs> and, you know, he's just really angry about it and uh, he's the one, uh, he's the one character in the film who could tell mum to fuck off and so I, w- I realised that was that was my thing. This is not a comedy thing at all. This is, this is a character thing and I thought, if mum comes in, I, if everyone stands up, I'm going to sit down. If they stop talking, I'm going to start talking. If whatever, whatever I do, I'm just not going to, if she gives me a hard time, I'll just give her a hard time back. I'm just not going to 
That was the interesting thing in him. That's what you're looking for. But that command of character will allow an audience to enjoy the character and your performance because they can see, oh, this is by, by, by getting down to the essence of what someone is and identifying it. What you're describing there is not only dramatically accurate, but also very funny. Because you're going, if, if, if everyone stands up and you sit down, you're not going for a comic beat. You're going for the truth of character. But weirdly, that's a little bit what, what, like what Lithgow's doing in that he's completely occupying the character. But the accidental consequences of that is that you go, this is very either dramatic or very funny. Well, I yes, I would... I think what I did in Victoria and Abel could be funny in the right circumstances, but because the story is not being driven yeah. in that way, it isn't, in, and it goes to a very dark place. Um, it's not, but the, the beats of, of comedy and, and drama, they're not too far away because the, the, somewhere up there, it's very, it's very faint and difficult to see, but, but um, you know, black comedy is tragedy, is drama. You know, they, 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 they actually, can link together, but I am not thinking. I, I've trained myself to basically to drive a car and to ride a bicycle, or drive a car and fly an airplane. Two different mm. things. They are related. Certain maybe that's what's interesting yeah. is that the, the, the scene you were describing there. Literally, if you'd imagine a scene where where someone just because they hate their mum so much does the opposite, could be played for last. But the idea it hadn't occurred to you, or you went, "Oh, they're not in this world." Yeah, that's very interesting to sort of say that the drama, the reality of the character is so real that your comic sensibilities have turned off to an extent that you yeah. wouldn't go, ah, there's a laugh here. Yeah, I absolutely, that is, and I'm not worried about it anymore. And I can sit there and just, I know where the, because in comedy, I know what I'm looking for, the edges. I know where, yeah. where, and, and I've trained myself in that, and I've now trained myself in drama to say, what are the edges of the scene? What can I do in this scene that only make it bounce out without throwing the other person as well? Because you, you can't make it, you know, I don't think some people do, but some actors do. But I don't think it's right that you trip up the other actor. You're just you want to work with them and give them something. Give you know, there's a whole scene I have with Judy where I say, uh, "I'm gonna I'm gonna have you committed." You know, to in, in, you, have you done as insane? And if I I had to thump that into her, I had to really bash that into Judy. And if I did, then that would give her the ammunition to bash it right back at me. It's the tennis. more I did it, yeah, it's tennis. <laughs> and she, she she, grand slams it back to me with this, this big speech. And that I knew that was there. So I just had to pile drive this in. And then she could pile drive it back to me. And it had this camera was huge. The lens was huge. It was this massive thing right in front of my eye. I couldn't even see Judy because quite often you're acting and you, um, you'll have just an X or a little dot mm. or something. So that's where she is in real life. And I'm not talking to her. I'm just talking to... I've just, she's just behind the camera. So it's, but you train yourself to do all these things. It's weird, you get, because in stand-up, you're just on the stage and I play like it's in your own bedroom and these people just happen to have come in. And in, on film, you you have to ignore all the cameras and the things and the yeah. groups and people adjusting the focus. And I do remember when they, those cameras used to freak me out and the screaming, you know, the, the shouts of the the first AD. All right, lock it down. Let's go roll cameras. Getting ready for that, which I now ignore all of that. It's almost and, a way of getting everyone tense. It's like, it, it yeah, well, it did seem. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood plays against this by saying, uh, and go and stop uh, in your own time, you know, when you want to. And then there's other people just watching James Cameron because um, he gets really into doing his films on Terminator. You know, my tastes are very much uh, <laughs> not what people might, you know, it's action movies. I just know them quite encyclopedically. And uh, so I was going to <laughs> Terminator 2 and Schwarzenegger talking about him and saying that when he gets in a film, he's just very focused on the film. 
and he's saying, I hear them say action, you know, because he would say action, like you do, like most, but Clint Eastwood said, no, that's not what's key. It's just say, go, just start when you want. Because <laughs> just trying to get those real moments. Different rhythms, different textures, different feel on the set. Yes, and whatever works, you know, for the director or the, the actors or, or however it is. But I do love, film is my first love. I broke into Pinewood Studios at 15, so. Really? Did you? Yeah. Well, you see, this is, this is my analysis. <laughs> I was analyzing from an early stage. This is, this is in the, if you read the biography, there's, there's the first, I'll tell you, the, the first line I got was I was seven and I was trying to do, and I, I decided I wanted to act and, um, or I liked it, liked the idea of doing this. And it was um, Beauty and the Beast. Um, and, and I was down as a street urchin with another bunch of, I think we were obviously the useless kids. So Beauty, you're playing Beauty, you're playing Beauty's dad, you're playing the Beast, you're playing the, the guy from the SES who comes in, or whatever it is. You know, a number of people got characters. And you eight kids, you're useless. You have one group line. Remember the group line from childhood? Yeah. Oh, beauty, don't go. Oh, beauty, don't go. So this was, oh, beauty, don't go. And and I, and I know I was seven, and I know I did this, and, and I thought, these kids are a bit dozy, but I'm not so dozy. So when the cue comes, well, I wonder what the street urchins think. I just jumped forward and said, oh, beauty, don't go. <laughs> and they, they were just inhaling breath, getting ready for the line. And I'd said it very quickly. <gasps> Ah, well, the spokesperson for the street urchins feels that you should not go beauty. But I think you should go beauty. Otherwise, this story is about a young girl who doesn't go anywhere and there's a beast on a hill and no one knows anything about it. <laughs> That's not good story technique. So off you go. Um, so that was my first solo line, which I stole. And, and I was working things out. And anyway, so I worked out films exist. Films exist. I love films. Films exist. Those are people in films. Okay, the people are in film. This is this is pre, you know, coming out. So I'm I'm doing basic analysis at this point. People, there's a real people. They're not they're not just gods who live in the film television thing. <laughs> so they must make them somehow. They make them. Somehow. Oh, there's credits at the end. This is the '70s, and there's no stop. There's no um, videos yep. freezing. Yeah, so um, I sat at, in front of TVs with a with a notepad and just copied out as key grips. What's key? I don't know what that means. The gaff, the gaff. I don't know what that means. It says producers. Okay, these are who's that? What's his name? I was copying down names and things. And at the end of Battle of Britain, you can see it. Um, who gets what credit at what time is obviously a deal that they cut out. And at the end of Battle of Britain, it says shot shot on location in Spain and in Britain. And at Pinewood Studios, Ivor Heath Bucks. And it's a big one single card, so they, that, yeah. it, which is unusual. They don't, yeah. That's the studio thing. It comes right at the end. This was up front, so before everyone's got up and paid popcorn, you know, and said, "I'm I'm I'm going to the toilets now." At the end of the film, you're going to see that before you go because there must have been financial things and whatever. And I, I copy that down. Pirate Studios, Ivy Heath Bucks. That's I, that's where I have to go. So where where's that? And so using the non-internet method of going to, I think, W. H. Smith, saying, do you have maps? And they got maps. And they got, yeah. you got one of you with all the towns and cities of the entire UK in there. And they did, alphabetically, they used to have them alphabetically, every single thing. Because otherwise, how did you find it? And I, got, I went through it, and Ivor Heath, okay. So th that is the name, that's a village, that's a town, that's a village, I don't know. And it's there, and I took a bus, no, I took a train from Bexhill-on-Sea to London, took a tube to Uxbridge, took a bus to Ivor Heath, got out at a roundabout, I remember saying, is it Pinewood Studios? Yeah, it's half a mile down here. So Walk down the Pinewood Studios, there's a big gabled entrance, used to be the main entrance. And I thought, okay, now what do I, uh, right, I don't have this, I'm not sure how to do this bit. So I just went up and said, um, I'm going to work in films and uh, uh, can I come in? Because I'm going to, I'm going to work in films. 
And they, I don't know what they said. I've said what they said. <laughs> Fuck off, kid. Or piss <laughs> off. Or just go. No, whatever. They they did not entertain me. But I've got I've I got this map and there's a Battle of Britain and there's <laughs> no no just go or we will kill you with our thoughts. You know. <laughs> um, so I thought I've come too far. So I thought there must be another entrance. And the second entrance, which is now the main entrance, it was very close to the main entrance. So I walked up and then I went into Eagle, where Eagles Dare mode, where they watch <laughs> the entrance into Schloss Adler, and they just watch people walking in and out. And then Clint Eastwood and and um, Richard Burton walk across, speaking obviously fluent German, except it's English. And said, "What was her name?" The thing. So they're the they're officers chatting, so they can get through without having their passes checked. And I'd noticed that if you watch that entrance, it's not the same these days. But uh, some people were showing passes, and some people were just walking in. Some people were driving in. You know, it was it was if you could have the chutzpah. It's the one we talk about this just for the podcast. If you're wearing a high vis jacket, you can walk in almost anywhere. This if you is, look yes, like yeah. you're meant to be there, <laughs> the high vis jacket thing. So I did the high vis attitude jacket equivalent <laughs> of attitude so i walked in and uh, i said in one version of my stand-up that i crept around and i realized I, no i didn't i walked at a certain speed i walked quite fastly i walked you know there's a certain brisk speed and don't if, stop me yes whoa don't because I, I if i'd had the if i'd known about stanley kubrick and i'm after stanley wants his sandwiches on a rye bread i you can't, don't stop me. <laughs> right, Mr. Kubrick will be very annoyed. Um, that would have been great to use. But anyway, I was in. Then I was in, and then I had to keep moving at that speed. And I walked around Pinewood Studios quite fastly um, for two hours, <laughs> waiting for someone to say, You, stop moving so fast. Come and be this kid who's lead in this film is dead. It just exploded. You can be the lead. Ah, yes, because that was what you'd heard that, you know, I had to know, I didn't know how to get into the film. And I went up to the Bond stage. I went all around. Wow. Did you go onto the, onto the sound stage? I didn't, I didn't, I could hear people talking in the Bond stage. And I thought if I go in there, then they'll find me. I, it should have been the last thing I did that went, okay, you're going to get turfed out. But even at 15, I would have thought that could have been a black mark against me and then I'll never be in the film industry again. But I could hear them on the other side of the door and I should have, I wanted to go in. But even if I'd gone in, there would probably be somebody, what, uh, can I be Bond? No. <laughs> if they said uh, yes, <laughs> and that's how I am. Just well, for a minute. No, you wanted just to that's how I got here today. You wanted to speak. I mean, it worked for Spielberg. He, he, yeah, you'd be at a fake which, office or something. Which I've heard is that uh, David Geffen say, I don't think that story is quite true. Because he did. It's too brilliant to be true, surely. It, I think some of it's true. I, I don't know. He said that. If you look at the Spielberg documentary, yeah. that I do think he, he definitely got off the, um, the Universal tour, hid in the toilets so they'd gone and, and, and mooched around. I do think he found an office. I don't know whether that led to him taking off or not. I think it put, it's probably his film. He was making all these yeah. these Super 8 films. And, uh, that's, the, that's the more normal way, and is to actually do the thing you're going to do. But right getting, it through, to right, getting it through <laughs> yeah. the right people was so yeah. hard. You know, it was... But there is a magic to that, and I certainly I, I completely sympathise with that. I'm growing up thinking I want to be at the places where these things are made. There's yeah. a magic to them, and th those those cards at the end. The idea that those things were happening near you. You yeah. were in Britain and Star Wars. And Fairly near, yes. And the Star Wars, they're happening. I broke it at Elstree as well. I got immediately thrown out. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's a magic thing that, that you go, <laughs> I, I, but part of my, again, you're talking about strategies and things. You go, well, hang on, I need to be where the battle is happening, at the front line. I need to be somewhere yeah. where I can be see the generals working. I tried to get into Tiswas. <laughs> no, into, into um, what was the one after Tiswas? OTT. 
Yeah. I've got to get that because when I, when I moved to Chef, when I was Sheffield University, studying accounting and financial management with mathematics, my biggest, my long degree course, and there's a lot of Birmingham guys up there who saying, "Oh, we're going to watch Tiswas now." And do you know, Tis yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're watching Tiswas, and I was going, "What's what Tiswas? The morning, but why am I watching?" Oh, oh, wow, this is good. Then they started OTT, which is the evening version. Yeah, and I, I thought, naughty Tiswas. And I'd heard a story, which is a true story, where. Um, uh, Peter Sellers, excellent uh, imitator of people, um, had phoned up uh, a producer and said, imitating two writers who he must have met. And he said, um, uh, hello, doing this. Hello, is that, yeah, this is Kenny Stevens here. You know me, and, and we're here with Frankie. Hi, Frankie. Young man, is Peter Sellers. Is Peter Sellers? Yeah, it's Peter Sellers. You know, just, do you recommend him? I think you should have a look and put him in your show. Uh, all right, well, okay. If you do both, you know, I trust you as writers. If you're doing it. And he said, actually, no, I am Peter Sellers, and I'm just impersonating that, just showing what I can do. So, Prince, yeah. what do you see? And apparently, he saw him <laughs> and put him in a thing. Um, so, I thought I'd do that, even though I couldn't impersonate him. <laughs> So I went to, to phone Chris Town. I've told this story to Chris Town. He went, huh, and didn't react to it. <laughs> but I went down to, I hitchhiked to, from Sheffield to Birmingham, got off at, at Spaghetti Junction, interestingly, which you can, I walked, the guy said, we're oh going the God. wrong way off here. So I walked off a motorway. <laughs> and it was, as I remember, a bus stop at the bottom, which doesn't make any sense. So there must have been off the slipway, there was a bus stop. And I took a bus into the center. They had just changed over the phone systems from the bip, 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 bip type phone, which is obviously a pay phone, into you could load up money, more international ones. You could put money in, and then you mm. wouldn't hear these pips. You could just keep your 10Ps in there. It would, it would hold a few. So there were two of those phones in the whole of Birmingham. And I got into one of them and just sort of sat in it, phoning up to try and talk to him, Chris Tarrant, to be able to try and pretend to be his agent, so I, I was trying to talk to his agent first. So I phoned up to talk to his agent, and he was in, he's in, in London. Is he Shirley? Yeah, he's in London, I'm afraid. He's not coming. Will he be back? No, yeah, he's supposed to be back. So I was waiting all day. Four o'clock, is he back? No, he's not coming back. Five o'clock, he's not coming back. No, he's not, he can't make it back today. So I can't, I can't even listen to the guy's voice. So I'm not going to do an impersonation of someone I've never heard <laughs> to Chris Town. <laughs> and so I got as far as, oh, there's the OTT office. So I get through to, uh, can I speak to Chris Town, please? Who's that? Uh, is Harold Stephen. Oh, hello, Harold. It's Shirley here. Hello, Shirley. <laughs> which which Harold Stevens is this? Uh, damn. <laughs> that was it. But I, but I was, you know, I was really trying to get into things. I, you know, I would just, I wanted David Putnam. I was obsessed with David Putnam's movies and him. And I just thought if I could just get myself to the set and be on, you know, sweeping up. And then from sweeping up, you can get to T-Boy and then you can get, you know, that mm. is a way. That yeah. is a way. It yeah. isn't necessarily the direct way. Um, and I, I never could. What you're talking so about there is it's the, it's the perfect blend of drive. You sort of said you need drive, talent. Determination is more important. Than drive and, and then just cunning. Drive and yes. kind of blind, stupid cunning. Well, it was, it's, <laughs> okay, it's mili the military tactic is attack, re pull back, regroup, attack, pull back, regroup, attack, change the plan, it's change a war the things, of tactics. No, it's a war of persistence. It's, it's actually, <laughs> it's, it's Grant at Vicksburg. It's Ulysses S. Grant at Vicksburg. It's just, you just try what, try plan A. Okay, plan B. Okay, plan C. Okay, plan D. Plan E, plan F. It does get tiring out there. And you just, okay, go back to plan B, B with a bit of C in it. Okay. And plus, plus B, plan, you know, just just keep trying. And then something takes, you know, which was, I could feel the stand-up taking. Yes. Was there a feeling that it could have been anything? What? If any of those things had worked, if you would... Of those three comedies? Uh, or, no, or of anything. If, if no, you, it wasn't all, anything. Your... It was all in the comedy issue, the, the right. drama. Only when the stand-up started taking off, right. I thought, this is happening. 
Now, if I get too well known as the comedy guy who has these crazy yeah. things with cats and, and ducks with guns. It'll close the other doors. That, it'll close the doors. So st hold it down now. I think I'm doing interesting stuff now and uh, in drama. So I had to pull the drama up. And then I knew I was going into politics. And if I felt if, there's, if the momentum, critical momentum of your, of your drama and your comedy is enough, you can go away into politics and come back without, you can put your career into hibernation mm. as opposed to shoot it in the head. Can I ask a seemingly daft question? What? Are you enjoying it? Are you having but, fun? But the, in, are you, where career. you are, where you are, basically the, 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 this long thing, which Absolutely. is obviously involving so many different variables yeah. and things. Are you having fun? Yeah, I don't want to go to politics, but I feel <laughs> I have to because I believe in the world. I believe where in humanity. Where on earth do you get all your stamina from? I was just reading. I started to read a little bit um, a couple of days ago about that stretch you did of, you'll tell me how many marathons. Was it 37 in 41 oh, days or something? 43, 51 in the UK and 27, 27 in... I just got tired reading about it. <laughs> South America, yeah. Where do you get uh, that kind of stamina? South Africa. Um, it, I think it's built in. I think that really? I just had, well, I had, the, I had the determination, but I also had this dream, uh, which is kind of a madness until the dream starts to work. And I thought, you've got to protect this, this little cocoon of, of uh, you believe you could do something. I thought I could do something that could work around the world, but it, you know, it wasn't working when I was seven, it wasn't working when I was eight, it wasn't working when I was 10, when I was 12, when I was 14, when I was 15. 15, I, had a, I had a, did a play that got some laughs. Things began to work, and then I thought, right, I'm definitely going to do this. I have to go to university because there's a certain pressure, but I'm just going to do shows like crazy when I got there, and and everything else was just pushing. And, and at times, you know, it just it just I didn't think it. I thought it would take a year or two years. Mm. Most of Python were performing on television about 25, I think. I think um, Michael Payne is the youngest, and I think he was in things at 25, maybe even 24. I wasn't. I didn't get anywhere until I was thirty. So, but that's my strength now. The ten, <laughs> the wilderness years are actually your stamina training years, and um, so that's why I could do that and go to the marathons and then do politics and then have to come out of politics and and carry on. Is that the energy that I imagine doing something like politics is going to require an enormous amount of, of energy? Yeah. It, when I look at politics now, it just looks exhausting. Even yeah. reading about it, it's, it's like it's like reading about marathons. It's just it, it looks like an exhausting thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... well, curiously, we were we were talking to a friend of ours who's a, a political editor, um, and he was saying it's, the basically MPs are so tired; they're so tired now because not only are they they seem to have been in in this struggle now for what is it three years or something with nothing happening, with lots of effort being made, but also they're now under constant abuse from all sorts of different directions, and it's getting it's really getting to a lot of them. It's affecting their mental health. Everyone's just tired. It is tough. Um, is that why you have to do it? Because it, it needs. Well, to I, I train myself for to, for a fight. I'm very positive about about Britain, about about our country, about our continent, about our world. I've played in 45 countries. I'm performing in four languages. Um, I believe this. I've said this a number of times. This is uh, 21st century is a coming of age century for the, uh, humanity. Um, I think we're just lucky enough to be here. There's no one overlooking us from up in the clouds. We know that. Um, World War II sort of proved that. It's up to the goodwill of men and women. And so this century, we'll either make it a fair world for 7.5 billion people, or I think we're going to wipe ourselves off the planet if we continue with this lying Brexit, Trump hate kind of thing. Um, so I like, you know, I've worked hard to get my thing going, my career going, which is great, but that doesn't really help any, any other people. I want to I want to be positive. I want everyone, to, everyone should have the right to have a fair chance in life. So I'm going to go and fight for that. 
Donald Trump's going to say, grab every woman by the vagina, all Mexicans are rapists. If he's going to lie, lie so much that he's lied more than Hitler now. Um, you, I just think this has got to be fought. And young people are getting up and fighting now. And it's the young and the young at heart. So mm. we've got to fight this thing. The idea that we go back to where we were, 1930s politics, let's try that again. <laughs> it's just insane. Everything that, that you know, uh, that Churchill for Churchill believes his dream was the United Countries of Europe. So I'm going to go and fight for that. And uh, we've got to learn to live together, work together in some shape or form. Otherwise, there's 7.5 billion of us, and we're not going to make it. So I'm I'm going to go and fight. That's a blend of incredibly high stakes and incredibly high hopes, which is actually quite a nice thing to hear. Well, I was a young person, a person 19 years old, was saying. It's it, if you talk to young people, I've campaigned to young people a lot before, and they put me there because I'm transgender, and it, it kind of relates in a certain way because this um, it doesn't look like you're very you know old establishment, mm. but they also young people will not react to well your pension's going to be good and the thing the price of housing yeah. and the thing they don't really react to that they want people with with a vision of the future. My vision is everyone has the right to have a fair chance in life, enough security, enough democracy. Uh, the chance that their their kids will have a better life than them, and that, and we all have to be, we have to be getting to that place for everyone. And in our country, we have to be getting places where, as as the time goes on, people will have a better. Life. Working people, people struggling, they want to get their money. They don't want to listen to a lot of politics, but they want to have a decent life. They want to retire. They want to have a decent holiday. Um, I I believe that pulling out of our central trading market is just such a bad idea, and you know they were anti they were against austerity but someone told them austerity was part of europe and i that it wasn't that was come from the subprime market which is very rich and greedy people who tend to be right wing people so this is all this twisted stuff has come out so i'm going to fight for and young people they say we want to be part of our continent it's our continent why should we mm-hmm. go and yeah. hide ourselves from our continent and stick our heads in the ground so um that's what i'm going to fight for that sounds like a brilliant thing. And that is a beautiful place, I think, to finish. What a lovely, lovely sentiment to end on. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. It's been no so problem. lovely. Eddie, thank you so much. Thank you. No problem. Thank you.